Hello and welcome to episode three of Alice is Everywhere. Today we are going to read chapter three of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and of course discuss it. Chapter three is entitled A Caucus Race and a Long Tail. I debated internally whether we should talk about what a caucus is before or after reading the chapter and I've made an executive decision that we should do it after. I think that'll be more fun and add to the nonsense if we just you know dive right in. I will tell you that the long tail in the chapter name is T-A-L-E, that kind of tail. I will also tell you that in the second paragraph of this chapter, it contains the word familiarly, and that I am apparently incapable of pronouncing that word correctly in any sort of context. So if I butcher it, I'm just going to plow right through. I hope that's okay with all of you. Now, when we last left our hero... She was swimming in a pool of her own tears, chatting with a mouse, and they had come across several other little creatures also swimming in her pool of tears, and they were all headed for the shore. Chapter 3, A Caucus Race and a Long Tail They were indeed a queer-looking party that assembled on the bank, the birds with draggled feathers, the animals with their fur clinging close to them, and all dripping wet, cross, and uncomfortable. The first question, of course, was how to get dry again. They had a consultation about this, and after a few minutes, it seemed quite natural to Alice to find herself talking familiarly with them, as if she had known them all her life. Indeed, she had quite a long argument with the lorry, who at last turned sulky and would only say, I'm older than you and must know better. And this Alice would not allow without knowing how old it was, and as the lorry positively refused to tell its age, there was no more to be said. At last the mouse, who seemed to be some person of authority among them, called out, Sit down, all of you, and listen to me. I'll soon make you dry enough. They all sat down at once in a large ring with the mouse in the middle. Alice kept her eyes anxiously fixed on it, for she felt sure she would catch a bad cold if she did not get dry very soon. Ahem, said the mouse with an important air. Are you all ready? This is the driest thing I know. Silence all round, if you please. William the Conqueror, whose cause was favored by the Pope, was soon submitted to by the English, who wanted leaders, and had been of late much accustomed to usurpation and conquest. Edwin and Morcar, the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, Ugh, said the lorry with a shiver. I beg your pardon said the mouse, frowning, but very politely. Did you speak? Not I, said the lorry hastily. I thought you did, said the mouse. I proceed. Edwin and Morcar, the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, declared for him, and even Stigand, the patriotic archbishop of Canterbury, found it advisable. Found what? said the duck. Found it. The mouse replied rather crossly. Of course you know what it means. I know what it means well enough when I find a thing, said the duck. It's generally a frog or a worm. The question is, what did the archbishop find? The mouse did not notice this question, but hurriedly went on. Found it advisable to go with Edgar Atheling to meet William and offer him the crown. William's conduct at first was moderate, but the insolence of his Normans... How are you getting on now, my dear? It continued, turning to Alice as it spoke. Well, as wet as ever, said Alice in a melancholy tone. It doesn't seem to dry me at all. 
In that case, said the dodo solemnly, rising to its feet, I move that the meeting adjourn for the immediate adoption of more energetic remedies. Speak English, said the eaglet. I don't know the meaning of half those long words, and what's more, I don't believe you do either. And the eaglet bent down its head to hide a smile. Some of the other birds tittered audibly. What I was going to say, said the dodo in an offended tone, was that the best thing to get us dry would be a caucus race. What is a caucus race? said Alice. Not that she much wanted to know, but the dodo had paused as if it thought that somebody ought to speak, and no one else seemed inclined to say anything. Why, said the dodo, the best way to explain it is to do it. And as you might like to try the thing yourself some winter day, I will tell you how the dodo managed it. First, it marked out a race course in a sort of circle. The exact shape doesn't matter, it said. And then all the party were placed along the course here and there. There was no one, two, three in a way, but they began ran running when they liked and left off when they liked, so that it was not easy to know when the race was over. However, when they had been running half an hour or so and were quite dry again, the dodo suddenly called out, The race is over! And they all crowded round it, panting and asking, But who has won? This question the dodo would not answer without a great deal of thought, and it stood for a long time with one finger pressed upon its forehead, the position in which he usually sees Shakespeare in pictures of him, while the rest waited in silence. At last the dodo said, Everybody has won, and all must have prizes. But who is to give the prizes? quite a chorus of voices asked. Why, she, of course, said the dodo, pointing to Alice with one finger, and the whole party at once crowded round her, calling out in a confused way, Prizes! Prizes! Alice had no idea what to do, and in despair she put her hand in her pocket and pulled out a box of comfits. Luckily the salt water had not got into it, and handed them round as prizes. There was exactly one apiece all round. But she must have a prize herself, you know, said the mouse. Of course, the dodo replied very gravely. What else have you got in your pocket? It went on, turning to Alice. Only a thimble, said Alice sadly. Hand it over here, said the dodo. Then they all crowded round her once more, while the dodo solemnly presented the thimble, saying, We beg your acceptance of this elegant thimble. And when it had finished this short speech, they all cheered. Alice thought the whole thing very absurd, but they all looked so grave that she did not dare to laugh. And as she could not think of anything to say, she simply bowed and took the thimble, looking as solemn as she could. The next thing was to eat the comfits. This caused some noise and confusion, as the large birds complained that they could not taste theirs, and the small ones choked and had to be patted on the back. However, it was over at last, and they sat down again in a ring and begged the mouse to tell them something more. "'You promised to tell me your history, you know,' said Alice, "'and why it is you hate C and D, she added in a whisper, half afraid that it would be offended again. "'Mine is a long and sad tale,' said the mouse, turning to Alice and sighing. "'Well, it is a long tale, certainly,' said Alice, looking down with wonder at the mouse's tail. "'But why do you call it sad?' And she kept on puzzling about it while the mouse was speaking, so that her idea of the tale was something like this. Fury said to a mouse that he met in a house, Let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have a trial. For really this morning I've nothing to do, said the mouse to the cur. Such a trial, dear sir, with no jury or judge, would be wasting our breath. I'll be judge, I'll be jury, said cunning old Fury. I'll try the whole cause and condemn you to death. 
You are not attending, said the mouse to Alice severely. What are you thinking of? I beg your pardon, said Alice very humbly. But you had got to the fifth bend, I think? I had not, cried the mouse sharply and very angrily. A knot, said Alice, ready to make herself useful and looking anxiously about her. Oh, do let me help to undo it. I shall do nothing of the sort, said the mouse, getting up and walking away. You insult me by talking such nonsense. Oh, I didn't mean it, pleaded poor Alice. But you're so easily offended, you know. The mouse only growled in reply. Please come back and finish your story, Alice called after it. And the others all joined in chorus. Yes, please do. But the mouse only shook its head impatiently and walked a little quicker. What a pity it wouldn't stay, sighed the lorry as soon as it was quite out of sight. And an old crab took the opportunity of saying to her daughter, Ah, my dear, let this be a lesson to you never to lose your temper. Hold your tongue, ma, said the young crab a little snappishly. You're enough to try the patience of an oyster. Oh, I wish I had our Dinah here. I know I do, said Alice aloud, addressing nobody in particular. She'd soon fetch it back. And who is Dinah, if I may venture to ask the question, said Lori. Alice replied eagerly, for she was always ready to talk about her pet. Dinah's our cat, and she's such a capital one for catching mice, you can't think. And, oh, I wish you could see her after the birds. Why, she'll eat a little bird as soon as look at it. Well, this speech caused quite a remarkable sensation among the party. Some of the birds hurried off at once. One old magpie began wrapping itself up very carefully, remarking, oh, I really must be getting home. The night air doesn't suit my throat. And a canary called out in a trembling voice to its children, Come away, my dears. It's high time you were all in bed. On various pretexts, they all moved off, and Alice was soon left alone. Oh, I wish I hadn't mentioned Dinah, she said to herself in a melancholy tone. Nobody seems to like her down here, and I'm sure she's the best cat in the world. Oh, my dear Dinah, I wonder if I shall ever see you any more. And here poor Alice began to cry again, for she felt very lonely and low-spirited. In a little while, however, she heard the little pattering of footsteps in the distance, and she looked up eagerly, half hoping the mouse had changed his mind and was coming back to finish his story. Pattering of little footsteps. I wonder who that could be. But I'm not telling. You have to wait until chapter four. Okay, let's start with a little review. If you'll recall, the last time we talked about how Alice was a real girl and Charles Dodson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, would sometimes take Alice and her sisters on boating excursions up the Thames. And it was on one of those outings that he first told them the story of Wonderland. Now, when Charles first told the story... He wasn't thinking in terms of publication. He was thinking in terms of keeping three little girls entertained. So he was certain to fill the story with things that the girls would find familiar. Like this chapter. This chapter is actually based on a boat ride Lewis Carroll and the Reverend Duckworth took with the girls a few weeks before telling them the story. On June 17, 1862, the same party of five, plus a few others, I believe uh, Charles's own sisters were present, or a few of them, he had a ton of siblings, uh, but they were rowing away happily when it started to rain. And I mean, it really started to pour. They were on their way home at this point, so Charles dropped the kids and women folk off at a nice lady's house. He knew the lady, it wasn't just like a random stranger. Then he and Duckworth walked home in the rain and sent a car for the others. Or I guess a carriage, right? If we're talking about Victorian times. He sent them some sort of transportation. I'm picturing like a Cinderella type carriage, but that, that probably wasn't it. 
So you'll recall Lewis Carroll is the dodo, the good reverend is the duck, older sister Lorena is the lorry, younger sister Edith is the eaglet, and Alice, well, Alice, Alice is Alice. Edith sounds like a little brat the way she goes sassing the dodo, I must say. Oh, and just random little note here, a lorry is a parrot. Maybe that's obvious and all of you knew that, but I did not. A lorry is a parrot. As for the other curious creatures, the first of two illustrations for this chapter, I'm talking about the original illustration, shows an eclectic group including many birds, the big and little crab, some like groundhog type mammal, and lurking in the background, a baboon. Now, some people like to theorize that the animals crawling out of the pool of tears was a nod to the theory of evolution, since Darwinism was a, a hot topic at the time. But I don't believe there are any words from Lewis Carroll himself to back that theory up. Now, Carroll was almost certainly aware of the baboon's inclusion before of publication and okayed it because he worked very closely with the original illustrator, John Tenniel, perhaps a little too closely for Tenniel's comfort, which we'll discuss at a later time. I would like to take a moment now to appreciate perhaps the most underappreciated character in Wonderland, the mouse. He's the first one Alice talks to, and he's hilarious. It probably goes without saying that the text he uses to attempt to dry everyone off comes from a real history textbook. Now, when the mouse says he's going to explain why he does not like cats and dogs, and a long and sad tale that sets up all kinds of punnery involving tales and knots, but more importantly, it sets up an emblematic poem. An emblematic poem is a poem that is printed to look something like the subject matter. So this poem is printed in the book to look all bendy like a mouse's tail. And I hope I didn't sound too uncertain while reading it, because I'm reading out of an actual book, not like off a computer screen, and the poem's text gets smaller and smaller toward the end of the mouse's tail, and I suddenly panicked that maybe I wasn't going to be able to read it, but I, I could. It's not that small. I will put a, a picture of the emblematic poem on our website on the podcast page so that you can take a look at it if, if you're not familiar with it. So visually in this chapter, we have the first illustration of the mouse talking to the whole gang, including Alice and the baboon. We have the emblematic poem that is actually shaped like a mouse's tail. And then we have a second illustration of the dodo very solemnly handing Alice the thimble. Now, I've looked at this illustration countless times in my life. As I've mentioned, I've been a fan of this book since I was seven. I have looked at it so many times, but it wasn't until I did a puzzle of it last year that I noticed the dodo has a human hand. It's weird. I, I don't know if Tenniel did that simply because it'd be hard for a dodo to hand over a symbol with wings and feathers, or if there's some deeper reason. Uh, either way, it's a little unsettling once you discover it. At least it was for me. Now, let's talk about caucuses. A caucus, by my uh, paraphrase definition, is a meeting amongst a group of like-minded people to decide on a candidate or to decide on policy. Now here in the United States, the Iowa caucus is always a big fat hairy deal. 
Uh, I don't think it's very hard to discern Lewis Carroll's feelings about the usefulness of caucus races, what with everyone running around like crazy and winning being, you know, basically meaningless. On the topic of choosing candidates, let me tell you who I'm supporting in the next election. I kid, come on. Okay, <laughs> we haven't talked too much about Charles Dodson, the man. I mentioned that he lived and taught at Christ Church College. Now, while he was there, his subject was math. He was a mathematician. In most biographies I've read, it's usually with some condescension that his math career is brought up. It usually says something like, oh, he was an okay teacher, but he didn't really have any significant contributions to the mathematical field, which I always thought was funny like, my dad, he's a retired math teacher. I've never heard anyone say, yeah, he was a good teacher, but, you know, what did he do for math overall? What have you done for me lately, dude? I mean, math had been around a really long time. Were Lewis Carroll's contemporaries really still inventing and discovering things left and right? Well, with the teensiest amount of research, I discovered that, yes, they were. James Clerk Maxwell was a mathematical physicist who was almost as important as Newton, and George Boole, he invented a little something called Boolean logic that perhaps you've heard of. So yeah, uh, still lots of new ground being covered mathematically in Victorian times. Tying this all together, the one contribution Charles Dodson made that is still talked about upon occasion, one mathematical contribution of course, was a new system of voting called Dodson's Method. Now, I will now quote Nature Magazine, who did an article about this, because I am a bear of very little brain, and I could not possibly begin to describe it myself. <coughs> Posthumously, beginning in the last half of the 20th century, his contributions to voting theory were uncovered in three papers written between 1874 and 1876. The third... A method of taking votes on more than two issues is the most important. Carroll was the first to create a voting method that would achieve biproportional representation. That is, proportionally, proportionately, oops, proportionality? Yeah, that's a word. Proportionality with respect both to the population in the districts and to the apportionment of seats to the political parties in the legislature. Now, despite Carroll's friendship with Lord Salisbury, the UK m Prime Minister at the time, it was not applied for political reasons. Today, the European Parliament uses a form of proportional representation. End quote. So, <laughs> there's that. Now, the chapter ends with Alice once again offending folks by talking about her cat. I sometimes find it hard to believe that she is so insensitive she kind of sounds like a little monster talking about enjoying watching her cat eat animals. Um, just seems weird that she keeps doing this, offending everybody. But I may be projecting because I personally identify with Alice a lot. So maybe I'm just hoping I wouldn't be that insensitive and stupid. I don't know. That is all for today. Tune in next time to learn whose pitter-pattering little feet are coming down the hallway. I'll give you a hint. Chapter 4 is called The Rabbit Sends in a Little Bill. As always, if you like the podcast, please leave an overly effusive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And I'd like to end today's episode with a moment of silence for the dodo.
not Lewis Carroll, but the actual bird. From a very young age, I knew dodos were extinct, but at some point when reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland over the years, I wondered if they were extinct when the book was written. So I looked it up, and much to my surprise, they had been extinct for almost 200 years. The last dodo was killed in the 1680s. Such a tragedy. A moment of silence for him. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk soon.